Hello, I'm Billy Bailey, and this is Porch Stories. I am pleased to welcome my new co-hosts, Brandy Chun and Blake Crook. Brandy and Blake, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves? So I'm Brandy Chun, museum manager of the Porch Panda Creek Indians Museum. I am the daughter of Mary and Dean Boy, granddaughter of Birdie Dolly Sales, McGee Hammock, and Howard McGee. I'm the mother of three wonderful daughters, Jacelyn, Macy, and Danny, and the wife to Jason Chun. Uh, my name is Blake Crook. I'm the son of Sherry Walker Crook and then the grandson of Ethel Walker. And I'm also the museum receptionist. Thank you. So uh, today we'll be talking to Miss Lori Sawyer about the history of Porch Creek education. Uh, but first, we'd like to Miss Sawyer to tell us a little bit about herself. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. My name is Lori Sawyer, and I'm a tribal member of the Porch Creek Indians. I've worked for the tribe on the hospitality side for 18 years, and I've worked in the cultural department for three years. My mother was Gail Thror, and she was one of the earliest employees of the tribe before we were federally recognized. She was our tribal enrollment specialist and historian for about 30 years, and my brother was Robert Thrower, and he was our Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. Um, I learned about the Indian schools like 30 years ago when I first came to work for the tribe. I had graduated college and got my degree and moved away to the big city, lived in Washington, D.C., um, and worked for the federal government. And then when I had my daughter, I wanted to move back home and raise her around my family. So after three years of being a stay-at-home mom, I was approached by Buford Rowland that I want to come work for the tribe. And we wanted a museum. And we this was before gaming, so we didn't have any money for anything, much less a building. But we did have the Porch Indian School on the powwow grounds. But the problem was, back then, they had added a second story to the building, and um had used it for our tribal headquarters, but that building had been declared unsafe. It was a fire hazard, so we couldn't use it anymore. So the idea was, well, let's get an ANA grant, renovate the building, and then we can use it for our museum. And that's what we did. Thank you so much for that, Ms. Lord. Um, so uh, today's podcast topic is going to be uh, focused around Creek Indian education and the Porch Community Schools leading up to the Consolidated School. Right. And uh, I was hired as the curator educator in 1992, November. I then became the project coordinator for a federal grant. It was $150,000, three years from the Administration for Native Americans. And with that, we were to develop cultural classes and exhibits. And then we were supposed to research the history of the Indian school and uh, select uh, architectural firm for a renovation plan. And that's exactly what we did. We brought in Sam Proctor and we did language classes and we bought uh, mannequins and and developed the historical clothing, the leggings and the beaded bags and the the moccasins, uh, the whole works. And so we had that exhibit. And then uh, this was before social media. So we had to put ads in the newspaper and have people bring in their old photos of the school and their stories. And so they would bring their they would bring their uh, photos to 
the office and I had an SLR film camera and I would literally take a picture of their pictures while they were still standing there so we didn't have to take um, their originals. And uh, so we, we got those developed and had a really nice photo exhibit. And then we identified teachers and students and even one principal. Uh, one was still living. She was 93 years old, Miss Ollie May White. And so I drove to Pensacola and interviewed her in her home. Uh, and then at Pow Wow, we had a class reunion of students who attended all the Indian schools. And we uh, did a group photo and I designed T-shirts for everyone. And then we worked with Bullock Tice and developed an architectural plan to bring the school back to how it looked in the 1960s so we can include the bathrooms. Um, and then the tribe used a subsequent grant for the actual construction. And we did use the Indian school as our museum and gift shop for several years. So the basis of the grant was one to provide money for us to have the exhibit in the museum and renovations of the, the schoolhouse that we had. Yeah, it was everything. I cannot believe we got all that done. Right. With, with that much money. And then within that, you had produced. So here in my hand, I have the history of Creek Indian education. That was that also was the research. The research. The, yeah, research. We had the exhibits. We did cultural classes. We did reading classes. We did language classes. Then I was in the same time I was doing the research. And as everybody would bring in their photos, I thought I was doing research on the brick schoolhouse. And then everybody comes in and starts telling me all these stories about, oh, no, I went to this school. And no, I went to this school. Holy cow. I had no idea. There, and there were <laughs> over a dozen buildings. You know? Yeah, no idea that all those other schools were around. No. No, it's just all new to me. So this was like the first start of our first archives. Would you say that that was maybe the start of the first archives that we had yeah. here at the tribe? Yeah, because we were asking people to bring uh, things in from their home and, and actually making copies of it and, so, and collecting all of that. So, Miss Lori, we get that, you know, they were coming in, bringing their information, bringing their material. The research that was done by you and the the information that you did for, for the tribe. Why was it so important, do you think, that education was so important for Creek people, but not only Creek people, but for our own porch Creek people? Yeah, I, I think education is probably one of the most important things. Um, and, and the only way I know how to really answer that is to go back in time and think about what happened to us when we didn't have access to education. Okay, so I'm going to need to do a little time travel back about a century. Let's go back to 1929-1930. And I want to introduce you to Dr. Robert Macy and his wife, Anna Macy, and Reverend Edgar Van Edwards. Okay, so these were Episcopal missionaries, and um, they had heard about Creeks needing help in Alabama. And... Um, they had been working in South America, so they knew about poverty, but they were shocked at what they found at Porch. The level of poverty was so extreme. And uh, they wrote in their reports that many of the Indians couldn't read or write um, and that they, the county would not let them ride the bus and would not build them school. So... Dr. Macy 
treated over 150 cases of infected bookworms in that mm. first year. They had no access to health care. They didn't trust the doctors. Doctors had taken their land for payment. Uh, they were working uh, field work, usually picking cotton or potatoes or tomatoes, um, and they would get paid with vegetables. Miss Roberta Sells recalled getting paid with a bucket of milk so sour it would make a hog drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Episcopals commented that, that these people are so intelligent that the, the older people who can't read or write, if they if you read the Bible to them, they were memorizing it. They could recite the Bible from memory. They were intelligent, they were resourceful, they were they had to build everything for themselves and they were so generous. But they said that they were exploited by whites in every way and they were powerless to stop it. So, you know, how does this happen? How do you get to this point? So did they have any education prior to that? Like did in Timsaw area and all before yes. they got here? Yeah, they did. And the point I wanted to make was that they didn't get to this point of poverty by accident. That many things had happened along the way to get them to this point. So now we need to time travel back another century. So let's go back to the Tensaw area. This is after 1813, after the attack at Fort Mims. And we know at that time that after the Creek Wars, that the Creek Indians, they lost their homes, they lost their land, they pretty much lost everything. So some of the Indians were allowed to remain, and some were received allotments of land along the Alabama River in the Tensaw Little River settlement. But this was valuable land for growing cotton along the river. And almost immediately, white settlers came in and began harassing them, wanting their land. So the violence was so intense that they had to petition the President of the United States in 1815 for help. They described forceful uh, possession of their land, racial insults, physical violence, and uh, many of them actually did end up moving out of that area. So by the 1850s, you see uh, several of, okay, this is like two generations later, several of the Creek families had moved eastward towards Huxford um, in the Red Hill area. So now you're, you're seeing William Bart Gibson, Jack Rowland, Sidney Lomax, um, Lynn McGee. These, uh, the first three men had married uh, the granddaughters and grandnieces of Sam and Nat. So they had moved into the Huxford area. And now the Huxford area back in 1850, this was completely isolated, unpopulated pine woods. And about all they had was the portion of the federal road, that's Jack Springs Road, that was connecting the, the Roland and McGee land down to the other McGee land at Hedda Perdita. So that's pretty much all that's here right now. And you've got this, these families that are living together relatively peacefully. And the land that you're talking about 
from Emma McGee and had a potato was the grant land that he had received. Right? Yes, exactly. You had a cluster of families around Lynn McGee um, and, and then Hutsford. Uh, Hutsford, I think, was earlier. And then within 10 years, you, you've got people living at Hedda Perdita. And in 1860, the census is recognizing these people as Indian. Okay. Then we have the Civil War, and about nine of our Porch Creek men went and fought for the Confederacy, and they returned to a devastated economy. A lot of economic pressure and stress. Um, that's when you start seeing southern states almost immediately are, are beginning to enact legislation that is specifically designed to stop the integration of the newly freed African-Americans. And these are called Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. And they would continue and increase over the next three decades. By 1875, the Alabama Constitution required that black children be educated separately from white children. And then you get the railroad brings in the timber companies in the 1880s, and big timber business comes in and starts buying up all the land because now the timber is very valuable. And the white settlers want to take that. So now you're seeing a tremendous surge of white population into this quiet, isolated Huxford area. So you're saying that the far the forestry come in, forestry companies. So before that, from what I could gather, the creek people were cattle herders. Cattle farmers, yes, and things that's like that. uh, and my understanding is that no, Lee McGee was uh, yes. big in cattle uh, stock herding, mm-hmm. and so he was more familiar with these wooded areas. And a lot of this was free range cattle land, exactly. You're exactly right. And so it was mostly settled by these Indian families up until the 1880s. And then, if you look on the census, you'll start to see Sullivan over and over and over and over. Sullivan Algiers Company. Yep. Mm-hmm. They're buying up. The, and that's a timber company. That's a big, big timber business. And so lots of workers. So now you're seeing an influx of white population. Um, they said over a 10-year period, over 1,100 additional whites moved into the area. Um, so at about this time, you start seeing Another migration of the Indian families are now moving out of Huxford southward to live closer to the families around the head of Perdita. They're having to get out of Dodge. Um, and can you tell me what, what time period that was again? Okay, that would have been in the 1880s. 1880s, okay. And then what's important, in 1880, if you look on the census, now, some of these Porch Creek families who were designated as Indian in 1860 are now being designated as mulatto. So attitudes towards the Indians have changed. And they're, they're seeing them through a new filter. Um, in 1890, 
Alabama passed legislation that allowed local trustees to apportion education funds as they saw fit. Think about that one. <laughs> and of course, this favored the white schools. And then in 1896, the concept of separate but equal was upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. So now, while these Jim Crow segregation laws were primarily designed to marginalize African Americans, uh, denying them every basic right to education, employment, everything, this racism had become so intense and so normalized over the last 30 years, you had an entire generation of people, that's all they had ever known. And now it's spilling over and impacting other people of color, and it's impacting the Porch Creeks. So by 1908, you see the designation of Indian schools in county records. So by 1908, at the Indian children and they're segregating them out by their race and they are educating them in separate schools and this is because the white parents don't want their children to go to school with the Indians now. They further isolated the Indian people. Yes, but you see what a slow process it mm -hmm. was. Bad legislation, bad policies and, and, and turning a blind eye to racism because it was getting them what they wanted. They were making a lot of money. They wanted the land. They wanted the timber. It's just too easy, and they could get away with it. So, 1908 is is that when the first uh, school pops up in the porch community? Is that is that the one that we refer to as the first school? Okay, that's a good question. And no, 1908 was the first year that the school board began to provide teachers for each of the schools in the area. But that doesn't mean that that's when they opened. It means that's when they first started keeping records so they could pay these teacher salaries. So how long do you think they were around before that? Oh, I, I, I know they were existing before that. In 1799, John Pierce set up a school in the Tinsall Settlement at Boatyard Lake. And, and from from what I gathered, that was the first public school in Alabama, right? Yes, that's what I've read as well. And we know that his students, according to Pickett, were mixed blood of every hue and included Weatherfords and McGillivrees, Durants, and Tates because that those were the Creek Indian families that were living along the Alabama River in the Tensaw Settlement. And at that time, before the Creek Wars, they were established and they could afford to pay someone to educate their children. So you're saying in 1790s, there was an integration of all race of children in school? Yeah. For over a decade, Indians and whites were living peacefully, coexisting, and they were able to afford to equal opportunity education. for education yes. at that time. Yes. Um, that didn't last. Prades mentioned in 1870, the state established three schools. Uh, one was for black children and two were for white. And he said that um, he assumed that the white 
children and the Indian children may have still been attending school together because one of the schools was taught by uh, Mrs. Elijah Tarvin, and she was Porch Creek. So I looked up his land homesteads, and yeah, it's over in the Tensaw Little River settlement. So I imagine that school was over there, and I imagine that uh, it was Indians and white children going to school together. And then we don't have census records. We don't have enrollment records for schools in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. But we know that children were being educated. If you look on the census records, there are tick marks for can read or write. And then if you live long enough to make the 1940 census, it actually tells you how many years of education you got. So we know, according to census records, that uh, Bart Gibson's sons, Bill and David, were educated. And this would have had to have been in the 1880s. Um, we know that his grandchildren were educated. Um, and they were probably attending the Bell Creek School in the 1890s. Uh, Roberta Sell's parents, Will McGee and Bessie, had fourth grade educations and third grade educations. And James Colbert had children in the Hog Fork School, but he also had a fourth grade education. And then Otha Martin said that his grandfather, uh, Robert Martin, uh, attended a McGee school in Huxford in the 1880s. So the earliest schools were probably as old as the earliest settlements, or close uh, to it. And where, where are they all located? Okay. The earliest settlements, and in chronological order, Huxford, uh, we know that John and Polly Rollins uh, claimed to settle their land about 1850. And if you look on the map, I'm not sure where that map came from, but I have seen a map that on the Polly Rowland land grant, there was a little cross there. And they said that there was a, a cemetery there. And then right adjacent to her land was the Lemke track. And it had a cross. There was a cross below Polly Rowland's land and it said McGee Cemetery. So I'm guessing that right before you go over the railroad tracks, close to where the Elementary school is down in Huxford. There's a cemetery on that road. Yeah, right down I would, road. I'm going to say that that's where the Huxford school was. In that location. Yes. Okay. So that's 1850s. 1860s, you've got the Head Perdita settlement. Then in the 1870s, you have the Bell, 1877, you have the Bell Creek settlement. And then in the 1880s, you have the Hog Fort settlement. And then the porch switch rolling settlement around 1900. And each one of these had their own school or church school. I believe so. I don't know about the rolling, how far back it went, but I know that these settlements had a building that was used as a church and a school and a community center. That's what they were using for schools, and I think they were using those before 1908. Yeah, so, so what names were these schools? Uh, about how many were there, and what were their names? 
um, from what, what we can get. Okay. Um, but before we do that, Lori, for the bis- the listeners, can you tell us, so you mentioned Hedda Bell Creek, Porch Switch. For the listener who does not know about these communities and where they will be in location to um, Modern Day Porch, can you give us more of a visual about those communities? Yes. Um, and I will actually walk you through uh, when we talk about the different schools, we'll, we'll drive along that road. Okay. <laughs> but uh, Huxford it's present-day Hudford, right at the railroad tracks. Um, Hedda Perdita is today where our current tribal reservation is. Um, or headquarters, headquarters, tribal headquarters. Yes. Okay. And that land specifically for Hedda Perdita School was on Sells Road. And uh, Fort Switch would have been right at the railroad tracks. As you cross over on Porch Road, Highway uh, County Highway 14 at the railroad tracks. Bell Creek is uh, on Bell Creek Road, uh, just as you go over the Bell Creek Bridge. It was on the left. And then Hog Fork was in the New Home Cemetery right before you get to the casino on Porch Road. And um, you were asking about, you know, how many schools were there. Well, technically, there was only one building that was a designated school. And that was the little brick schoolhouse. A consolidated school. Yes, because all the other buildings were the Porch Creeks making do with what they had. And, exactly. and in most cases, they were the community center or an old dwelling house. In one case, it was an old uh, a store. So, um, and these seem to be separate from the churches. There were there was a church in Marshville, and then Judson Church, and I've never seen reference to holding school in those. So these churches that were in the settlements are holding a, a, a slightly different purpose. They're more of a community center, and they very rarely had a preacher. And so Miss Roberta Sill said if they didn't have a preacher, they would have dinner on the grounds and they would take turns and go to each uh, community each Sunday and have dinner on the ground. So it was a, a way of coming together uh, as a as a community. So um, and like I said, that we talk about the four Indian schools, but I think we need to claim the Huxford settlement as well. Technically, there's five, but can we recognize four? Yeah. Who would have built the schools? Would that have been the locals or the men of the communities, or would that have been, I know we had missionaries coming through before we had the Episcopal missionaries coming through. Um, do you think that was funded by the missionaries coming through, or do you think that that was our, just our people of porch that would have built these churches and yeah um in all but two cases it it was entirely from what i can see the indians had to take care of themselves and i think that it was generally headed up by the landowner that you had certain members in each community that just kind of like owned that they were called their trustees and um and i think it was um like william will mcgee at the head of Perdita, Maybe even Richard before that. I don't know. Um, they allowed 
the community to use their land to build the community church school on their land. And they kind of looked out after it. But from what I'm told, the Indian men all got together and built it. And I believe that because the one at Heta Perdita looked exactly like the one at Bell Creek. Mm. And William Bart Gibson let them use land at Bell Creek to build that one there. The old road actually cut right through that cow field at Bell Creek. And that's and so the school was actually sitting right on the road that time. St. Anna's and St. John's in the Wilderness, they received donations of land from different people. The Episcopal Church helped provide the materials for building those, but the Indian men built them themselves. They did get donations of lumber and roofing, but there again, the Indians built all that themselves. So St. John's in the wilderness and St. Anna's, they were church schools a little later. Yes. Yeah. And and I'll go through, walk you through that okay. chronology too. Um, you're asking about the, the first to open and some of the, the names. Well, um, the first schools that were designated as Indian schools were the Gibson School and the said porch school, which is going to be the head of Perdita school. And that was the first designation of the Indian school in 1908. As we've already discussed, we know they were in operation prior to that, but that's when they were first um, designated as an Indian school. Right. Um, So of the five that you mentioned, are there any that still Stand. I, I know that uh, St. Anna's was used as a church, and that's still standing, but uh, the other ones, are they still standing? Or are there remnants of those schools? No. Um, and in 1993, when I was doing this research, even at that time, none of these schools were still standing. And most of them were very crude wooden houses, and it seems like that the life expectancy on these houses was about 25 years, right. if you were lucky. Wasn't there some archaeological work done on the Bell Creek one to find, locate it? Yes, and I was involved with that. Uh, the University of South Alabama did one day of shovel test at each site, and they asked me to join them to show them where I was told that the sites were. And we did shovel test. Uh, in most cases, we couldn't do shovel tests because the other locations were in cemeteries. So we're not going to dig in a cemetery. Uh, we did do some at Orch Switch out in the field. I, I, I didn't find, we didn't find anything there. But now the shovel tests in, um, at Bell Creek were actually successful. And where I was told the school was, the Landowner at that time had uh, bulldozed out uh, a place to put uh, to feed his cattle, so it was pretty heavily damaged. But just behind it, we did a series of shovel tests, and I found um, evidence of burned glass and square nails, and I found an overall button. So I think that's where it was. Um, and I was told that after it kind of fell down that they burned the remains. So that kind of mm-hmm. um, makes sense. Right. Um, 
Now, I, I didn't answer your question about the, the names of the different locations. The head of Perdido, they referred that, uh, that was called head of Perdido or Perdido Hills by the Macy's. Uh, the locals called it, I, I heard head of Padilla. I heard head of Pita. So I always just said head of Padilla just to kind of say the way yeah, that I was of, hearing it. From, from what I gathered, it's the head of the Padilla River, but they, they yeah. spoke it real, real fast. Head of Padilla is kind of what we just. Exactly. So when I was interviewing the elders, I would say it the way they said it. So I said, so they yeah. would know what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So we've got Porch or the head of Perdita, the Gibson. Uh, it's called the Bell Creek Indian School, and then the Roland was the Porch Switch School, and then the McGee was the Hog Fork School, and the Hog Branch runs through that area, and mm-hmm. I think that's where that came from. Would you like me to kind of drive you through the different locations? Yes. <laughs> okay. Let's start here at, at the building at right. the Port Creek headquarters. Right. So right. we're in the car. Yeah. We're in the car and we're on Lynn McGee Drive off of Jack Springs Road. And on Lynn McGee Drive is Sells Road. And to your south, if you look at the top of the hill behind where Miss Roberta Sells' house was, at the top of the hill is where Gloria built her house mm-hmm. and I was told that that was the site of the Eta Perdita school and that was the land of Will McGee and Bessie at the time that Miss Roberta remembered it um, she said that uh, when they stopped using it for a school her daddy gave it to Gloria and they tore down the old building so she could build her house so the head of Perdita School was the headquarters for that community, and uh, they they used that building for programs, dances, um, dinners on the ground. Um, the building was made of vertical, rough timber. It was a one room, high ceilings, wooden roof. It had a ladder. Stump foundations had a step to go up into the school, and there on the right was the pot belly stove, round kind mm-hmm. with a flat top. And um, I think that one flew out the ceiling. Then um, they had rows of benches, and they were hand hewn, and then there was a step up, and the teacher sat at a desk to the side of the lectern where the preacher would preach on Sunday. Miss Roberta Sells remembered that they had uh, outhouses out back, and I think the boys were on the left and the girls were on the right. She said that their teacher was real good about having programs at every holiday, at Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving. They were always having programs. And she said at 10 o'clock they had... Uh, recess and then they would have their lunch and they were always playing ball. They loved to play ball. Do you have any other questions about that at school before we go on the next? Okay. No. All right. Well, we're in the car. So here we go. We're gonna we're in the car and we're gonna um we're gonna head up uh Jack Springs Road and I know St. Nana's is there on the left, but let's keep going for now. Um we're going to go up 
Jack Springs Road until we get to Porch Road. Let's hang on right. We're going to head towards the casino now. Uh, we're going to hang a right, and we're heading east on Porch Road, Highway County, for, uh, County Road 14, until we get to the railroad tracks. That's where the Porch Switch Rolling School was. Okay. By the time I was interviewing elders in the 90s, no one was still alive that remembered it anything about the original school there. They weren't sure where it was. I don't know if it was right there in the field over the tracks. It had already blown down by the time the missionaries had arrived. And at that point, the children were all having to go to school in a little store. Now, they said that was um, just on the west side of the tracks, right in the corner. There was a building there. The one room would lead to. So that was the second rolling school at Port Switch. Now let's get back in our car. We're heading east still towards the casino. We're going to turn left on and head north on Bell Creek Road. We're going to travel up Bell Creek Road and go over the bridge, cross over Bell Creek. And then the road curves to the left and then heads back north again. And right there on your left, you're going to look out and see beautiful rolling farmland. And there's a high hill and a tree. And that school was right there by that tree. And as I said earlier, the um, original road ran right through that field. The school stood there by that tree. And um, to the left of the south of the school was uh, Dave Gibson's house and in later years after he died it was Nancy Hosford Gibson lived there and her son Steve and I think he became a uh, caretaker of the house of the school as well behind the school would have been um, long tables for dinner on the ground and then the, the land slopes down to a branch and there was a crossing at the, at the branch there, and um, the landowner at the time said that uh, you could still see the ancient hard pine logs in the river that they would put down so that the wagons could get across the river there. So, well, it's a stream, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bell Creek, I guess it would be Bell Creek coming through there. Yes. Yeah, and, and then there were crossings in two locations on the, the south and on the west were two crossings. So, um, so it's, if you were to go past Tullis Manor uh, north of Oak Road uh, in that exactly. area. Exactly. That's exactly where it is. It's behind Tullis Manor on uh, north on Bell Creek Road. So this Bell Creek, from what I was, I've listened to some interviews and Miss Ruby Barnhill spoke about her going to school there and spoke about it had burned down at one time. She spoke about her being in the fire. Wow. Do you know what year that was? I don't remember the year. But she did speak about going to school there and being in the fire. Well, at her age, it might have been an earlier fire, and that was not uncommon. And like I said, the, the life expectancy of these wooden buildings wasn't very long, so mm -hmm. there may have been additional structures. The information that I received was from about 
So that might have been a later building. However, um, I was also told that the, that it burned after um, they were using it. But the the school at Bell Creek looked identical to the one at uh, the head of Perdita. It was a rough lumber wooden building, um, and it um, had a hot belly stove, but it didn't have glass in the windows because the Episcopal missionaries actually acquired the glass for the windows at Peta Perdita. So Gibson School just had shutters. So I imagine it got kind of cold in the wintertime. Um, uh, there were no outhouses, at least at the time period that Miss Lefram Panizia attended, but I know there were outhouses at some point because I've seen the remains of them down by the branch. We found the toilet seats. Miss mm-hmm. um, Laverne said that if, when nature called, that the teacher would bring in newspapers and she would keep a box of corn cobs by the door. And when nature called, you just quietly went out and you went down the hill to the branch and got behind the tree. And uh, so. Um, they also had hand-hewn benches, and they had a curtain to divide the room in half, and they had uh, the first three grades, first, second, third on one side, and, and the other three grades on the other side. And, um, uh, several people that I interviewed remembered when um, Pearl Gibson Dees got sick and died at the Gibson School. They were having a dinner on the ground, and she had a very large border. She died. That came up in several interviews. Um, The other uh, significance of the Gibson School is that was the location that you went to after you completed the sixth grade. If you wanted to continue your education, you had to go to the Bell Creek School and take a county exam. You had to pass it before you could go on to school. But the problem was, as Miss Roberta explained to me, you couldn't ride the school bus, and most of the time your parents were too poor to own a car. So they couldn't get you to the higher, higher school. She said, yeah. She said, technically, Atmore never said, you cannot come in our school. They said, if you can get here, you can come here. And she said, but that was the rub. Mm. But she did. She managed you get an eighth grade education and there were a few others but it was not common but in order to do so her family had to have friends in Atmore and she had to go and live in Atmore during the week and then her mom and daddy would come and get her on the weekends so it was like going off to college or something it was a, it was a very big deal you have that much education. Um, okay, let's get back in the car. We're going to head south on uh, Bell Creek Road, and we're going to go back to Porch Road. And we're going to head east again, and we're headed towards the casino, and we're the new home cemetery is there on the right. Uh, and 
I believe it was settled around 1886 by John F. McGee. And uh, Ruthie Mae Racker remembered that her mother, Ida, went to school in a church located where Frank Flournoy is buried. And then she said she never actually saw that building. She just saw the that, photo. That was church that's... In the photo. Yeah, the photo is right beside the cemetery. Mm-hmm. I think so. Or it was right beside the cemetery. And then she said that um, she went to a, a subsequent school, a uh, church, that was located closer to where Calvin was buried. That's the one she went to. And then after that, there was a, they had to use a state farm dwelling house. And she said it was across the branch. I never could visualize exactly where it was, but they went to school in that one year. And uh, it burned. And the folks said that a certain white gentleman had burned it intentionally so that his children wouldn't have to go to school with Indian children. So they finished the school year in Mab McGee's house and uh, I talked to Olivet and she said that it was um, located behind her barn, behind her house. So, okay, so now we're going to get back on Porch Road and we're headed back to the tribal reservation. We're headed west go over the tracks and we come to Judson. We're going to, we come to Judson. We're going to turn left. Uh, We're back at St. Anna's where it is standing today. In 1932, the uh, Episcopal missionaries built St. Anna's. And um, it was named after Anna Macy, which was uncommon to name a church after a living person, but they really loved her so much. And, she was so good to the people, and Miss Roberta described going to her house. Um, and she would get people to send donations of old clothes and old shoes, and this would have been during the Depression. And they were so poor, and she would let the children go through these clothes and, and pick out what they could wear. And she found her, uh, a pair of shoes. She said she still remembered to that day, and was, you know, she was getting kind of emotional about those shoes and what they meant to her. And she said she was one of the only white people that would let us come in her home. And she always gave them grape drink, which I assume was Kool-Aid, and little sugar cookies. She always had cookies and grape drink. And she was just simple acts of kindness that um, really meant so much to them. And, and they advocated on behalf of the Indians to uh, get help for them. And they called out the school, uh, the, the school board and they called out the county medical for not helping them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they so made so they, they petitioned the school board. They was once petition school boards for better pay for teachers and things. They were at, they were letting them know that, you know, there's this tremendous need there and, and they couldn't understand why the, the county refused to help them. And so they went out and helped themselves. And they're the same same family that was involved with St. John's in the wilderness also, right? Yes. Yes. Um we may have skipped that. We skipped that one, didn't we? Okay. St. John's in the wilderness it was at Port Switch. It was the first school 
church building that the um, Macy's helped the Indians to build. They got donations of land and lumber and roofing, and they, uh, the Indians themselves built St. John's in the Wilderness. They said it had a good well and it had outhouses. It, um, <laughs> they remembered uh, at that school, the children from the porch school would come over to St. John's to play ball. Mm-hmm. Again, they love to play ball as much as they do today. Um, uh, she remembered Archie having to stand in the corner for talking, and there was a nail sticking out of the wall. And he told the teacher, if you make me job this nail in my tail, you're going to have to pay for it. <laughs> and he got it with him. <laughs> and then one day, the kids all decided to uh, just play hooky. And at lunch, they had left their lunch buckets outside, and they just disappeared and went and picked blackberries. <laughs> so, so that 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 church from what I've heard on uh interview was located where Friendly Holiness is now. Yes, that's what I was told. So now we're back at St. Anna's. The, um, there's a white house that's attached to the back of St. Anna's. And that was the uh, parish house. And that is technically the first consolidated Indian school. The little white parish the little house that is attached to St. Anna's. Mm-hmm. It was uh, owned by the Kings, as Miss Roberta told me. It gets a little confusing because everyone was calling the Pickerel House and the Parish House, you know, kind of the same thing. But my understanding and uh, is that that little white house was originally located um, a little further north. Um, there's a big field and a pond. And it was located up closer to the tree's edge behind the ball field in St. Anna's. And I know Eddie Tuller showed me the remains of the outhouses out in those woods. And uh, the Episcopal Church bought that from the Kings and used it for a school building because St. Anna's was so small and they were already outgrowing it. So they opened St. John's in 1931, and they actually kind of consolidated all the little schools on the east side of the railroad tracks into St. John's. And then the the next year, they built St. Anna's um, on the west side of the tracks, and that became the school for that side of the tracks. And then the Pickerel House across the street inside powwow grounds, the little, I don't think it's painted, the wooden house there. That was used by uh, H.U. Pickerel. He was an Episcopal church farm worker. And um, I was told that that was also used for overflow classes because by the time they built the brick schoolhouse, they were just, there were children everywhere. They had consolidated all of the children because in 1939, they got a bus from the county, and yeah. they were able to bus sure everybody right. in. So they had them in St. Anna's, they had them in the Pickerel House, they had them in the Parish House. There's children from McCullough coming and everything yes. at that time. Yes, <laughs> correct. So, and then, of course, you know, the Brick Indian School um, schoolhouse, and it was a three-classroom, and it had an auditorium and a small stage. And when my mother worked for the tribe before federal recognition, her office was up on that little stage, and, and uh, 
she was, I think, originally upstairs, but the the uh, the old folks loved to come and talk to Gail so much. They were afraid one of them was going to fall down the <laughs> stairs, so they moved her downstairs so they could get to her easy. So, um, there was no indoor bathrooms at, um, until the 60s, um, and each classroom had two grades and one teacher. Okay, Miss Lori, so let's back it up a minute. So we had these schools around the community. We have different schools. Why and how do we progress to having the consolidated school? And why was that an issue to push us to have the consolidated school? Well, the biggest reason was going back to making do with what we had. And the buildings that were being used were really substandard. And they, in some cases, they had 40 or 50 children. And they just weren't large enough. So technically, you could call St. John's a consolidated school in that it consolidated Hogfort and Bell Creek and the Port School, uh, Port Switch School. It was a bigger, better school. And so what grade did those, that school go to? It was the sixth grade education is all I was ever told that the Indian children were allowed I've heard eighth grade, but in some references, but I think that they may be referring to the outliers like Miss Roberta, who had to go out of their way to get the seventh or eighth grade education. That was not a function of the segregated Indian school, sixth grade education. So in terms of consolidation, St. Anna's was a better building. It was a bigger building. It was better designed specifically as a school and a church than the original community building. So it makes sense that they would move into that. Um, then again, the, the consolidated, the, little, the parish house was uh, bigger and, and better than St. Anna's. And then the, the new county school was bigger and better. Mm-hmm. So that really is why they consolidated. It was a function of necessity. They were outgrowing what they had. Okay. Can we get into that? I know we were tribes and had a lot of poverty. So how did they get to this small building? How did they, how was they able to afford this uh, brick building that's still standing? Okay. Um, basically what was the involvement of the county? In yes, all this? yes, yes, yes. Uh, not much. <laughs> Um, as we mentioned earlier, in 1908, the county began providing teacher salaries. Um, and I assume there were some textbooks. I know the Episcopals provided some donated school books, and I saw school books uh, listed on the Hog Fort enrollment records. Um, and I know that the county did provide in 1939, that's fairly late, they did provide a school bus, and it was just for going to the Indian school. And Dan McGee was the bus driver, and the kids called him Mr. Dan, the bus driving man. <laughs> and to keep things in perspective, going back to that 1890 legislation where they, the county can allocate funds as they see fit. 
county refuses to provide a school for the Indian children. And yet in 1908, Atmore received a $15,000 school building. And then when it burned, they received a $65,000 school building. Mm. So that it was perfectly legal for them to make those decisions at their discretion. Who received funds and who didn't? I had a question about the teachers. Were the teachers, so you're saying they provided salary for the teachers or payment. I mean, are these teachers providing adequate and, you know, a subsistence of education to the kids that are coming here? And what you what you learned, do you think they were receiving an adequate um, education through the teachers that were being provided? Most of the people I talked to, with a few exceptions, said that, yes, they were, they were good teachers. Mm-hmm. They really cared and they were kind. I asked about discipline. There wasn't a lot of harsh discipline. Standing in the corner, maybe a smack on the hand with a ruler. I know one child had to, uh, at Bell Creek had to put a rock on his head and walk up and down that hill down to the branch, you know, for talking back. And, but I mean, these kids are like telling the teacher, you turn that ice cream like a billy goat. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question as well. Uh, What subjects did they, did they learn? Was it primarily just uh, reading, writing and maybe math? Yes. They touch on like maybe science, history. No, I think it was a, a, Pretty primary school education. Uh, There was a list of textbooks. I didn't bring it with me, a list of textbooks of what they were doing, but it was mostly uh, reader and and some math and um, maybe geography. Yeah, big focus on reading and writing. Yes. Yeah, because it's little children. And a lot of manners, being able to behave properly in society. Going back to the teachers, if they were um, qualified or not, in many cases, and I actually talked to some of the teachers, and they were kind and they cared. And most of the elders that I spoke to said they loved their teachers. There were a few that, you know, said one was kind of bigoted, and she uh, went and lived with Miss Anna Macy, and Miss Anna Macy set her straight, and they didn't have any problems with her after that. They, I think they were good teachers. Now, there was an exception in uh, at the time of the when they were trying to get the consolidated school in the 40s, the complaints about the teachers actually factored in with that lawsuit. Okay. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that lawsuit. Um, what all did that lawsuit entail? Who, who kind of led that effort? And when did that begin? Okay. Unfortunately, when I was doing my research, I couldn't find anyone um, to talk about that with me. And they, I was told that most of those records were in a building that had burned and so that they didn't know. But I did have access to a few school board records, and they may be biased, but that's all I have to, to consult with. Um, the county did eventually build a school for the Indians, but it was a slow process. From what I understand, the Episcopal Church sold the county 10 acres of land in 1944, 
for the agreement they would build a modern five-room brick building and have all this acreage for demonstration grounds for agricultural and livestock work. Well, four years later, no school. According to these records, in November of 1947, Calvin McGee has children attending school in Atmore and Robinsonville. And at this time, it's a little more case-by-case how it's handled. And mostly the way they explained it to me, it's kind of dependent on how dark you were. That's what I was told, too. It's kind of a complexion base. Yeah, I, I've heard stories where they would pick up the light-skinned children on the bus, but pick up the, the dark-skinned children. Exactly. And I think that's why it's like, well, I thought they couldn't ride the bus. Well, <laughs> it depends. Uh, I, I've heard people say that it was harder for the ones that had a darker complexion. But Calvin's children were riding the bus in 1947. However... They wouldn't drop him them off at his house. They would only go to like the fountain place, and it was a, a like a mile and a half to two miles away from his home. So he complained and said, "You know, you're dropping everybody else off at their home. Why do I, why do I have to drive back and forth every day to get my kids?" Well. The school board actually passed a resolution saying that that they determined that an uh. A mile and a half was a reasonable distance for a child to have to walk to ride a bus. And so, at the same time, they had, and Miss Roberta explained to me that they had some teachers, three teachers, but of those two of them just were not doing their job, in their opinion. She said that, uh, you know, they'd had good teachers in the past, but these there was one in particular she said just didn't seem to care about the children and that she would let them go across the street and, like, smoke cigarettes. She didn't care what they did. And so I think it's great. The, the Indian parents a little um, boycotting there. They, you know, this good trouble. You know, they were they were battling social injustice, so they said we're not sending our kids to school until you deal with this. We need better teachers, and they were spilling out of that consolidated parish house school, and it needed work. They've been using it for ten years, so the Indians are saying you need to let us ride that bus consistently into our house. You need to get us better teachers. And you need to get us a school. And, you know, they were fed up. So according to the records that I saw, Calvin and a group of people went and visited Governor Jim Folson in Montgomery and said, can you help us? And he advised them to file a federal suit against them. And so they did. And uh, I saw, um, it was Hugh Roselle, I talked to him. I think that he was one that said that uh, the county, someone on the board said, well, we can't let our kids go to school with those Indians, those Indians. Um, 
And they said, well, if we don't do something, we're going to end up in federal court. So um, in the records I saw, it said in December of 48, Walker versus Weaver was what the case was called. I Googled that. I've not been able to find any information on it, so I can't confirm or deny. But I know it was uh, Hugh Rosell and um, Lenore Thompson. And they uh, filed an injunction against the county for the school boards and providing buses and equal facilities and uh, and and better teachers. And guess what happened? Uh, I mean, almost immediately, the school, the county began working on that building that school. It was only a twelve thousand dollar. School, we're at more at a $65,000 school, and it was only three rooms instead of the five that they were supposed to have. And it didn't have modern indoor bathrooms and no or, kitchen inside, no, none of that. It was very basic, but it was it was begrudgingly, but they did it. So, um, you know, we, we walked past that little brick schoolhouse every year at Powwow, and 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 I do wonder. How many people really understand what that building is mm-hmm. and what it represents? The importance of that building to the tribe. Yeah, and what it's a symbol of. And, you know, on the one hand, it's a symbol of racism and prejudice and white supremacy. But on the other hand, it represents resourcefulness and pride and people who stood up to oppression and demanded equal opportunity. Segregation is very hard for me to talk about. It's a painful subject to talk about. It's a painful subject to hear about, especially when you look at the pictures of these little children. They didn't deserve this. And then when you talk to old people that experienced this, um, they didn't deserve this. And and the thing is, segregation was still a thing in my lifetime. And I don't think I'm that old. But I started school in 1970. That was the first year of federally mandated integration. The federal government had to make the states stop segregation. In 1970, I went to school that year. I remember people were losing their minds, getting their guns and waiting for the race riots. And should we pull our kids out of school? And guess what? It was fun. Everything worked out fun. So as painful as this subject is, it's also very important because we have not solved this problem as a society. And it strikes me when I do this research and I look back in the 1800s and then the 1900s and then in the 2000s. Over and over, it's a story of people fearful of them and voting for politicians who are divisive and who fuel that fear and then enact legislation that does 
bad things to good people, like Indian removal and slavery <laughs> and Jim Crow laws. That's how this happens, and it's still happening every day, every time we vote for divisiveness, every time we turn a blind eye to racist comments, every time we don't speak up when we know something's wrong. This is still happening, and that's why we need to have these conversations. And, and while this chapter in our history is so depressing, I have to remind myself that at least this chapter has a happy ending because we did get federally recognized. And one of the first things we did was ensure access to education for every tribal member. And that's one. Because we knew how important it was. Racism hurts good people. It is dangerous business no matter what century you lose in. But I've also learned that, you know, they're good people. There are a lot of good people. And that makes me hopeful. And I, I love to read about all the quiet heroes in our history. All the folks who have stepped up, looked past that fear, and looked past that prejudice, and dared to be brave, and to stand up for us, and to try to help us so I have learned that one person can make a difference and you can be that one person in your life. And I want to be on that side of history. I appreciate that because that is a say, very... That a very spectacular comment. Uh, and I think uh, one word to describe the, the people that came before us is perseverance. Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. And I think that that sums up the ideals that that brought us to where we are. They persevered through the toughest, toughest time. Yeah. And they did so because they helped one another. They stuck together. And after having gone through all of that, you know, they could have used that as an excuse to be horrible and bitter and mean, but they weren't. I personally knew these elders you knew your grandparents and great grandparents. They were awesome. Yeah, they, they were so sweet. They and were so a close generous. community. Very they close really community. were. And Miss Roberta lamented the loss of that. She said, you know, we may have been so poor back then, but we had love and we had each other. And she said, you want to get left alone these days, just go get you some sickness and see what happens. She said, nobody helps one another. And that's, you know, we've lost so much over time and I think that's one of the most important things that we've lost that people don't talk about and so many young people don't even realize that they've lost it because they've never experienced it but just neighbors that look out for one another care about one another and come and sit with you when you're sick and and help you build your barn (laughs) you you know so I do have a question we were talking earlier Lori about how no one had to push you no one had to Luckily, in our generation that me and you are in and Billy and, you know, Blake is a little bit younger than us, but we've seen the progression of how fast our tribe has grown. But you had mentioned that no one had to push you to school. No one had to drive you to go get your education. Being that we in the generation now that we have the funds to go to school and we have the money to push our kids that are coming out of high school 
Why do you think, being that you were so driven, why is it so important now that our seniors that are will be graduating in May coming soon? What advice and from what we have seen in this podcast um, or what we heard in this podcast about how we were fighting just to have sixth grade education, but now we haven't. What would you tell the seniors or anyone that might be pursuing but does not have that faith in themselves to be able to go further with their education? And why is it so important as a tribe as a whole to have education? Well, from what I've seen, history is not this linear thing that we normally think of, that, you know, it's just a constant progression. We, we learn more and we do better. It's more like a pendulum swinging. Look at it, things get better, and then people start taking it for granted, and then all of a sudden it starts getting worse. And then it gets so bad that people go, this is so horrible, we can't stand it anymore, we have to change, and then it gets better again. And then it gets so good, everybody it forgets that there was ever a time where they didn't have all these rights, and they take it for granted, and they don't speak up, and they don't vote, and then it goes right back again. And look how many times it has swung back and forth, and not in our favor over the last few hundred years. So I don't mean to sound alarmist, but I don't think you can ever take it for granted that it's always going to be this good. It can get better, but it can get worse if you don't stay on top of it. We always had someone in the community that was staying on top of it, was speaking out, was helping, and was organizing things. And um, me personally, I can't I can't speak for other people, but growing up in my home, education was a value, just like honesty or integrity. Um, it was a value. It was never a matter of, will I go to college? It was, when will you go? How long will you go? You know, what will you study? Um, but there wasn't money for college. This was before, I went to college before the tribe provided assistance. So my only option was to make the grades to get the scholarships. So it wasn't that I thought I was better than anybody else. I didn't have a choice. And I consider it a huge honor that I was one of the earlier ones to have, able to get advanced education. It was good for me, but it was hard work. Um, my mother was deaf. She was the valedictorian of her class. She sat in the front and she read lips and she wrote down everything on the chalkboard. And then her friend, Nettie Ruth, Tullis, would share her notes and fill, help her fill in the blanks. And I was valedictorian too. My mother was the first in her, in our family to um, go to college. My grandmother was the first in our family to finish high school. That was a huge deal. And I want to point out that my family uh, in 1915, when Southern States was up here, they were cutting timber around 1910 in Port, and then they moved down to Walnut Hill around 1914, and so Ernest Gibson and his family moved with them so he could build houses there. So they were just across the line in Florida. They didn't deal with what I'm describing to you. My grandmother was able to 
she was one of the first uh, classes at Ernest Ford High School. Now they had segregated in, uh, they had segregated schools. The blacks were segregated from the whites, but the Indians did not suffer the discrimination just over the line of Florida. Wow. Mm. That they that their relatives at the same time period were were experiencing here. So it was a huge deal. My grandmother said she was of some age before she realized her mother could not read or write. Zephy Rowland. Um, she loved for uh, Charlene to read to her. They would sit on the front porch and, and she and it reminded me of the stories that the Episcopals told how the grandchildren or the children would read to the elders and the elders could memorize the stories. So all that missed opportunity. It's, it's sad. So, yeah, don't take anything for granted. Um, any of your rights. You don't have to be awful about it, but, you know, you deserve just like everybody else. So, well, no, did I answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> I think you did. I think you, you very, the point that I got out of it is taking things for granted and that some things that are here now will not always be here or could not be here. So just taking advantage and not only formal education, but informal kind of what we're doing here is talking and having the opportunity to raise questions and talk to people more of an informal learning. So I think it's important for us to just keep talking on subjects that eventually we don't will go away and we don't ever want to forget those or ever take for granted of information that we had that led us here that led us to the schools that we had, that led us to the consolidated school, that led us to where our museum has from originally at the consolidated school and now the museum that we have. And if we don't talk about that or we take for granted that this information will always stay for us, that's where we fail. That's where we fail future generations as not passing that information. And I want to thank you today for even sharing that bit of information that you gave us because again um it's a conversation starter for me that i have with my kids because i'm trying to push them i have a senior that would be graduating pushing her and pushing anyone that i come in contact with it's like stay vocal stay talking talk to your elders talk to people around you because that's the way we learn because we've always learned informally we didn't always have that opportunity to formally learn going to school and college and universities but that's just as important to learn informally so i just wanted to thank you for because i have learned on what you have shared with us today so i want to thank you and i think the rest yeah, of us you. you know thank you so much for, for coming by this has been real educational pun intended <laughs> and, <laughs> um, yeah that's uh, uh this has been great talking to you great it's uh, a real honor to be here i'm so happy that you asked me to yeah i'm glad that you got to share your research. It was uh, very, very helpful. Thank you. Uh, I, I do want to add one little clip just to what you said about uh, the, the young people. I was raised with the mindset of um, how can I help? How can I make things better? And that's another reason why to have a, a good education is think about how can you come back and make the world a better place in your community? It's so easy to sit back and criticize what's going on. What what are you willing to do to help make things better? I love that point. At that point, it's so easy to point a finger, but when you become an, a part of the process and the growth, then that become your is an understanding of like, hey, this is not so easy. Mm-hmm. So I do challenge anyone that is outside or you know to come in and maybe become involved. 
you know, be involved because that way you do know and you have a better understanding of, hey, we're fighting every day and maybe you can join the fight or whatever that fight may be. Yeah. Um, so, again, Lori, we want to thank you. In the future, we want to have several of these podcasts and um, hopefully we can um, generate what we just did today, opening conversations, being able to talk, asking questions so that we can have a better understanding. We're hoping that we will eventually get to the consolidated school forward and be able to discuss that. So again, we want to thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I appreciate all the work you guys are doing. It's really honorable work. And I'm so happy that you guys are in the positions you're in. So I wouldn't challenge anyone that wants to come to the museum and learn. We're open Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. There you go. <laughs> Love you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.